British crew has a tremendous turn of speed. They're a very quick crew, so the United States will have to stay with them. We have the imaginary line to line the bows up evenly. Every boat is not the same length. The start will be in French. Attention. Get ready. Attention. There they go. Looks like a fair start. What's their stroke count? Right now, the British crew is rowing 36 and a half strokes per minute. The U.S. at 34 and a half strokes per minute. That's a good sign, Kurt. That means the United States has more reserve. It has a place to go when it comes time to sprint. Let's get the stroke rating on the U.S. crew. We'll do it by the blade entry. One, two, three. The U.S. crew at 35 strokes exactly, with a good three-quarter boat length lead over Great Britain. It's still early now, it's still early, you can't say who's going to win this race, but they're in great position. The more lead they can put on now, better off they're going to be toward the end of that race, because the British have one whale of a sprint. Back leading, but Great Britain, with the number two on the bow, gradually creeping up in lane two. Here comes Great Britain now, pouring it on, and drawing abreast of the United States. This will be a two-boat race, they're coming down toward the grandstand. Sell-out crowd, there's about 12,000 a day. British are putting on one whale of a sprint, Kurt. The United States has got to respond right now. The American crew must respond. Kurt, it doesn't look as though they are. Great Britain in the lead. A great race. The British crew is now up to 43 strokes a minute, Kurt. 43 strokes a minute. That's some pace. That's a pace. Unbelievable pace. Look at them go. Great Britain, the favorite for the goal, has just passed... The American crew has taken the lead. We're in front of the grandstand. We're approaching the finish line. The Americans trying hard, but now dropped a half a boat length behind. It looks like a Great Britain goal in the men's four with Coxon. Yes, Kurt, it certainly does. Now, the American crew has to make sure that it hangs on and doesn't let any other crew pass it. The British have won this race with a marvelous sprint. Tremendous performance. Great Britain wins and wins with happy exhaustion. Yes, what a marvelous sprint they put on, Kurt. Those people really can accelerate that boat. Welcome to The Row Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion Winning. is to be the best. The best is something we strive for. Sacrifice. Crucial role is high fit. Compassion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Gold. Ultimate gold. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello ladies and gents and welcome to another awesome episode of The Row Show. Uh, it's really great to be on air again and to be able to bring you another amazing guest on our show and it really is one of our best chats we've had so far and really really i think you guys are going to enjoy this one so much jake would you do the honors yeah today guys we are really excited to, to let you know that we are ch chatting to martin cross and i'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with his voice and, and his commentating on world rowing but i'm also sure that you guys don't actually know too much about um martin cross and the fact that he is a double Olympic medalist, including a gold medal in 1984 in Los Angeles and a bronze in 1980. And besides that, he went on to compete at another two Olympic Games. So um, Mr. Cross was definitely a, a seasoned rower and a, a really successful rower um, in, his, in his career. And it's actually really interesting to get into 
his career that obviously t- uh, took place um, some years ago. And just to listen to uh, the awesome stories that he had rowing with people like Stephen Redgrave and, of course, getting coached by a, a common name now on the show, Mike Spackling. Yeah, Flip Jake, I think this is one of our best interviews ever. I mean, we really, there was such, first of all, going in, there was such a range of, of topics to discuss. And, you know, I always knew Martin was a rower, but I didn't realize how amazing some of his results were. So it was really cool to be able to dig into his results and realize that he's an Olympic champion with Steve Redgrave and, you know, a bronze medal at, the, at another Games and another two Olympic Games and world champs all around as well. So, um yeah just such a cool chat and then to move on and really pick his brain on his rowing knowledge because he's probably one of the uh, one of the people in the world that has the most rowing knowledge uh, of all time so it was really really cool to to be able to pick his brain and and hear his stories and and his views on rowing and yeah because you know you only usually get him for about six minutes of a race and he's trying to cover everyone down the track and, and you don't really uh, get into the the main details um any any real highlights for you jake well i mean like the fact that motocross has, has spent so much time commentating it landed the it made the discussion so much more lively and entertaining and i, I really enjoyed listening to him talking about competing um in the, in the the 1984 los angeles games when they win gold and how that crew came together the training they had going and the the different dynamics uh, amongst the crew was really interesting um, and I, I didn't actually expect uh, him to go into so much depth and, and you know, um, elaborate so well on the, the points like that. But it was really interesting to listen to and really uh, uh, lends itself to some engaging listening. Yeah. And on top of that, we had amazing quick fire questions and we even added more quick fire questions because uh, we knew the answers were going to be so good. So stick around for the end of the show to, to make sure you catch those. And yeah, otherwise, some some housekeeping. Just remember to share the show, guys. Uh, tell one or two of your mates about it each week, and uh, see if we can get our, our listeners going, uh, listeners getting up. And yeah, go rate us or, or review us on on Apple Podcasts because that always helps to to keep the show up and relevant in in all the searches and and helping people find it. And otherwise, I think that's all. Jake, anything else? No, I think Lawrence hit the nail on the head. Um, that's all, all from me, and guys, enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, and another episode of The Row Show is, is out, and today we are chatting to a very special guest. We have Martin Cross on the show, um, retired GB rower, rower, and of course, um, of which many of you are aware, that is also the rowing, world rowing commentator. Martin, thank, thanks for coming onto the show, and it's great to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here, Jake. Thank you. Of course. And, you know, I mean, lots of people are, you know, we know you commentate all the time. And I mean, that's the, you know, that's the, the main way everyone interacts with you and, and is aware of you. But you also have a very impressive rowing career. And we would like to get into that. So straight, straight out the, the gun, we want to chat about um, your 1984 uh, Olympic gold medal that you won in Los Angeles. Um, chat to us, you know, give us an idea what that Olympics was like. We know it was just after the Moscow and the lead up to racing there in the, in the men's Cox Fall. Yeah, it was. Um, so those were two strange Olympics. So um, I won a bronze medal in Moscow um, in 1980. And that was pretty much with a crew that I'd been with since school. 
So three of us had been schoolboys in the same crew. So it was kind of the culmination of, of about five years of work. And then um, I guess up until Moscow, everything had gone right for me. And um, after Moscow, everything seemed to go wrong. Um, <clears throat> we had a different guy in the crew the next year and we uh, were only in the B final. Um, the, the year after that, I stopped rowing and tried to scull, but we came miles at the back of the A final. Um, the advantage of that was I got to know Mike Spracklin and Steve Redgrave, who I'd be in the Olympic crew with. Um, but the following year, back rowing again, I was back right at the back of the A final. So um, I was really didn't know what was what was going on, and. Um, the, the 84 season hadn't started very sort of well for me. Um, I kind of wanted to do a pair with a guy that I'd rode with in Moscow. And um, Steve Redgrave wanted to do his single skull. He was going to be in the crew and stroke it eventually. Uh, a guy called Richard Budget, who um, <clears throat> was going to be in the crew, he wanted to do a pair with his mate. Um and Andy Holmes, nobody really wanted to row with Andy Holmes, um, who was going to be in the crew. So the season started and uh, I was battling, battling the authorities, um, sort of, they tried to introduce a national, or they did introduce a national squad that year in the winter of 83, 84. And I was trying to form an oarsman's union to combat it so that you could still have club crews and... Um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a great start to the Olympic season, but they kind of made these uh, groups. Basically, if you could row well, you could row smoothly and just the boat flowed on, then you were put in the eights group. Um, and if you sort of hit the boat hard and you tried hard, but you didn't have a lot of good technique, you were put in the Cox Fours group. So I got into the Cox Fours group. And we had these three pairs that battled against each other the whole winter under Mike Spracklin, who was also coaching Steve Redgrave in the single skull. So um, we used to race each other and just bash each other up every single session. It was a very, very tough winter. And we uh, had the final selection training camp in Zabaudia in, in Italy where we raced in pairs. My pair won. Um, Steve, I think, won in the single. Um, and one of the other pairs won in the Cox pair. And um, the coach asked us to write down all our crews that we wanted to row with. So um, I decided uh, that I wanted to row in a pair with my mate John Beatty. And um, all the other guys had put uh, a four with uh, with Steve Redgrave in and they asked me why didn't you want to row with Steve Redgrave and I said I, I just don't want to row with him because he wants to do the single he's not interested in rowing so I don't want to bother with him and um, so they kind of said okay uh, the first regatta Steve's going to do his single and then um, he's going to come into the four for the second day it was at Mannheim so on the first day, there were four of us, that, you know, from these pairs that raced and, and we actually won. We beat the world silver medalist just. We rode through them on the line and we got a, sort of um, the gold medal at Mannheim. And then none of us wanted Redgrave to have anything to do with the crew. He finished third behind Carpinen and Colby. And um, But the coach said, right, Sunday, so Steve's in the crew. So we went out for a practice outing the night after on the Saturday final. 
And Redgrave got in the boat at stroke and I went in the bow seat because I was stroking and the boat was just almost completely different. It just felt phenomenal. I remember, you know, we went off this practice start and I was trying to hang on in the bow seat. It just felt incredible. And the next day we just destroyed the West Germans. We were about a length up after about 20, 25 strokes and we just rowed away. And it was clear that that four was some, with Redgrave at stroke was something special. So during the season, um, it was the boycott year and the East Germans and the Russians weren't going to go. So we made it uh, a big point to go and race them over in East Germany where we beat the Russians and then we beat the East Germans. It was their top crew, actually, the Cox Four that year um, and set a new world's best time on the Saturday at Lusa. And then we pulled out um, because we felt we made our point. So we went very much to the Olympics as favourites. Um, and the thing was for me, um, about that Olympics was I, I found it very easy to be an Olympic bronze medalist. I found that as sort of, I could say what, you know, if people ask me, what was your aim in, in Moscow, it was to win an Olympic bronze medal. Um, but in Mos in Los Angeles, I, I never really felt I was good enough to be an Olympic champion. And, um, I never really had an aim of winning a gold medal. If people say, what was your aim? Um, my aim was what I wanted. I wanted to be in the Olympics. I wanted to win a medal, but my aim was to avoid losing, not to lose the race because we were so, um, strong favorites. That, um, the idea of losing was, was just horrendous. So, um, we raced this new American crew in the first heat. It was all Los Angeles was very glitzy. It was like, you know, compared to Moscow, um, it was the real glamour Olympics. You know, most TV shows were made in Hollywood and, you know, it was kind of, we were in close to Hollywood. And so that, that was an amazing experience. But the Americans in the first heat, um, it's a new crew and they were fast. They led us, but we rode through them and we had a, what I thought was quite a comfortable victory. And then we went straight through to the final, which was a kind of a wait of about a week, longest week of my life, really. Um, you know, you, you think it's quite good that you've qualified for the for the final directly, but the waiting is, is really killing because all you've got to do is train and think about the final. And... Um, <clears throat> When the day of the final dawned, it was almost that the racing wasn't going to happen because for the first time ever, it was really misty on the lake, like foggy, um, kind of a sea fog because we were at Santa Barbara near the sea. And um, the racing was postponed um, and was, we thought might be cancelled until the sea fog lifted because in the afternoon, they couldn't go the afternoon because it would be too rough. But anyway, we went out, we went out to row and... Um, the race plan was essentially to kind of dominate the first 250 metres, uh, not to allow the Americans to row to, to, to lead and just and then just to row away from 500 metres, push on and then just be leading at the halfway point and dominate the race like that. And so um, <clears throat> very, very tense for the final. And um, as I say, the idea was can't afford to lose this race. So um, I think we led for about two or three strokes in the first 10. And the Americans who were rowing really, really smoothly just came right back through us. 
and at sort of 250 they kind of had half a length and started to move away so the race plan that we had that our cox adrian ellison was going to call was obviously history so i said to her i was in the bow seat so i said to adrian i'm calling it so i started calling the race and the first thing was to try and check the americans move so we kind of went through the 500 the americans we kind of checked their move they went out to almost two-thirds of a length really and then we, we we pushed hard to try and get back through the americans but nothing we could do the whole race seemed to make any difference so i was calling for pushes and if you look at the film of the race you've got these americans and they run really smoothly really well and we're kind of very aggressive very front-ended sort of technique um really trying to sort of uh leave the boat through and and get ahead of the americans a thousand meters they were still like a second and a half up and then as the race began to run out in the sort of third 500 you know it was it wasn't quite desperation but nothing seemed to be working and then I think with about 450 meters to go, um, we started gradually to move, just edge up on the Americans a little bit. And then the, I think the last time I called was around about 350 to go and we were getting closer and closer. And through the 250, the Americans were still leading. And then we kind of edged back level with about, I don't know, 200 150 meters to go and then we were just moving straight through um i'd stopped calling and i think adrian started to call the cox and i i guess with about five strokes to go it was kind of like in that sense it was you know it was obvious i thought we're going to win this race and we crossed the line and i felt absolutely nothing like complete blank my head went down and then i think the first emotion i felt then was relief you know, relief that we won. And it wasn't until about a minute and a half or two minutes later that my sort of the guy I'd won the medal with in Moscow, John Beatty, came running around the bank shouting, Martin, 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 that I really sort of decided, oh, I thought, oh my God, you know, uh, we've won the Olympics and started to celebrate. So it was a very, very strange feeling, um, I think, you know, being an Olympic champion uh, when, you know, you didn't think you were good enough to be an Olympic champion in the first place. Sure. What a cool story, I must say. That's such a good start um, to our chat and just really just took me took me right in there and, and watching the race earlier today. Um, it's on YouTube and we'll put the we'll put the link in the in the notes below. But watching that race and you can just you can see the fog in the race. You can see the ray, uh, the the Americans going up, and I mean, it really is such a classic and such a good uh, rowing race to to go watch. And oh, I love the way you you speak about um, the the difficulties as going going into a regatta as a favorite, and how you know how that plays on your mind, and how you know emotionally it's it's really tough to to be on the line, thinking that you you don't want to lose. And and having to go through that process of of yeah not wanting to lose and then only and then having the the relief instead of the the celebration right at the end. So I uh, really yes, that's uh, that's some some really good uh, insights I think into that. And and was there any point of the race where that mindset changed from oh my word we we in second and it's ours to lose to like oh my word I really want to win this race. Um, it's a good question that and and I think. 
One of the things is is in terms of in process in training. So in our sort of um, we did a lot of training with um, against the women's eight that had a similar sort of you know uh, speed to us. They were only racing a thousand meters, but um, everything we'd done with them, we kind of always had been very strong in in the last part of the the race. So everything that we did. Um, you know, we had a we had a great sort of last last quarter or last eighth of the race, and um, and so the longer the race kind of went. In fact, in in the race talk the night before, Spracklin, who was our coach, Mike Spracklin, um, he kind of said the race plan that we'd dominate the Americans and wouldn't let them lead us. And I remember saying, why don't we just you know play it cool and just be in contact and then use our pace in the last quarter to come through. And they, you know, he said, no, that's too dangerous. And, you know, so I, the only thing that changed in the race was the confidence that we had something as a crew as the last 500 came up. Um, and I think, you know, all of us were natural racers. So I think one of my sort of attributes that I could bring, um, was a natural competitiveness and, and racing ability. Um, and and so the longer the race went on, the more it was, uh, it wasn't kind of desperation in the last 500. It was right. This is, this is our territory. And, you know, we have got as a crew, this wonderful ability to sprint in. And so I think, you know, looking back on the race, that kind of kicked in in the last 500. And then events started to, you know, started to show that was actually true as we moved back on the Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely evident in the video, like um, like Lauren said. And um, another another part I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to talk about is, you know, we've had we've had some phenomenal Canadian uh, rowers on the show. And... Uh, Part of obviously, if we're going to be talking about Canadian rowing, Mike Sprackling is actually a, a big, big name when it comes to that. And also, you know, before he was coaching Canada, he was coaching Great Britain. And as you've mentioned, he was, you know, part of the coaching staff when you were there. So I'm interested to to, to listen to what what are your thoughts on on his, you know, what was it like being coached by Mike Sprackling? And was he, you know, when you see videos, you know, that um, that awesome rock and uh, rowing documentary on. Mike Sprackling in the the um, Canadian 2000 Olympic eight was he very much that coach in 1984 and when he was part of the GP system and just interested to hear your thoughts on him as a coach there. Yeah, well, um, so I was coached by Mike for a number of years. So um, in 1982, I went into the quad skull, which he was running a young quadruple skull with with Redgrave in it. Um, so I I sort of deliberately gone to be coached by him and, and not row in the sweep team. Um, I, I think as a coach, I've learned more from Mike than I've learned from anyone. And that's from his, um, his plus points and his minus points as well. So um, he's incredibly competitive, um, which I think as an oarsman, you know, he always wanted to sit in the stroke seat and um, he always wanted to dominate the crew. He wasn't a big rower. So I think he used his, you know, his competitiveness and his kind of boat moving qualities. Um, so he always, as a coach, came with a sort of tag of this guy knows how to move a boat. 
or he knows how he knows how to get rowers to move a boat. And he would tell us stories. He was kind of a bit like, you know, he had this connection to the old professional rowers, um, that um, the scullers that used to race each other. So he kind of came with a real sort of, you know, um, uh, reputation to him in terms of technique. Um, in terms of, um, I was quite a battling and competitive person and Mike and I used to have a lot of rows um, or disagreements and um, I think he put up with me quite a lot in those early years anyway. Um, he could be quite a manipulative, manipulative coach in terms of trying to get you to do um, what it was that he thought was important. Um, at times he could be inspirational and, um, you know, it, I guess that kind of depended a little bit on the circumstance. Um, he, when I was, when he used to coach us in the quad, he, he didn't have a training program. So we just used to paddle up to the top of the reach and then he'd sort of say, I'd look at you and then I'll basically decide what kind of uh. training <laughs> You think we should that do sounds, this session? That sounds awful. <laughs> no, well, and, and then um, I, in ninety, I I'd been used to being coached by quite a structured coach who probably was nothing like as technically skilled as as Mike was or aware. A guy called David Tanner, and um, but he had a very structured training program. So I was saying to Mike, you know, we've got to have a training program. You've got to write a training program. I remember having a battle about this with Mike. Uh, but in the end, he wrote a training program for us for the Olympics and he kind of insisted we do all of it. So I was used to training programs being kind of, this is nominally what you said you do, but, you know, they could be adapted. But there was no real adaptation with Mike on the training program. Um, and he later developed that into a system where, um, you know, almost a mathematical system of the training program and structured it through the week. But um, we, we were a crew that came together around Stephen and we had a distinct purpose. Um, so there was no, um, the, the crew didn't have any longevity as such. And um, Mike didn't really structure it, you know, to have a long life. It was kind of, a, you know, a one shot wonder. We were like a, you know, a pop group that had one great hit record or, or two or three great hit records. And then we split up and that, that was kind of, the crew so it was it was very achievement focused um and you know there was a lot of tough work went in from sprackling and um i kind of would battle him quite a lot of the way so there was a lot of aggression sometimes between myself and mike and then a little bit between me and steven because steve was mike's sort of um protege and oarsman so um we did we did battle a lot that season and um, yeah, it was easier then. I, I found it easier then to sort of um, to say what I wanted from the coach. You know, you could do that then. I think these days with various systems and worry about selection and funding, it's, it's not as easy to, to sort of uh, stand out against your coach as it was then. So that's actually where I want to go uh, next because we're talking about the coaching, we're talking about the training program. Then 
what was the training like back then? Because I mean, this is uh, like 36 years ago. So what was your training like? Were you guys working as well? Or were you full time uh, oarsmen by that stage? And yeah, what how, how, how different was the training to to what you see people training now? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I think um, the first thing was that the crew, um, it, it depended on the crew. So Steve was a full-time oarsman um, and Andy was almost a full-time rower. He used to be a builder on building sites. Um, I mean, he, he was, you know, he was quite an educated guy. He did a sort of languages degree, but he, he reckoned that he was really tough. So he would be a hod carrier, you know, carrying bricks up ladders and things for brickies and he would have a double-sized hod that he, he would reckon he was much tougher and that toughened him up. Um, yeah, so um, I was a full-time teacher and so um, that year, the Olympic year, we our, our basic programme was to row uh, two, day, two sessions a day um, and... Um, Say so one of those might be training separately to the crew, and then then one in the afternoon was the crew training together. Um, and then, so so it's a twelve session week basically, and the the sessions were very competitive. So that a lot of a lot of um, anaerobic threshold work, uh, UT one slash anaerobic threshold would be most of what we did. Um, I think um, so. Uh, I can remember doing some some long sessions. So it, you know, it was never UT two really. We were always doing you know UT one and a half or something like that. Um, and and then as the year went on, Mike said we need to row three times a day, and um, and that was quite difficult because I could row which was okay so I was working full-time until we went to the Olympics which was about July the 4th and um, the Olympics was uh, back on what was it I think the finals were on like the 24th or the 25th so the lunchtime session I used to um, there wasn't enough time for me to get down to the river and back to the class so I used to have to get my colleagues teachers to kind of look after my class for about 10 minutes or so while I sort of made it back from the river. So I'd row at lunch break for the third session and um, and then we'd row in the four for the, you know, sorry, I'd row at lunch break for the second session and then I'd row in with the four for the third session. So we moved on to sort of 14 or 15 sessions a week as as the season got on, which I kind of would, would be vaguely similar to what we're doing now. Um, except I think the intensity was was probably a bit more in terms of Mike Spracklin's training program. Yeah, so I mean, I would say then that sounds very similar to to what's happening now, and maybe the difference is that the the like the time in between the the recovery and the you know the what we what athletes are doing between sessions maybe has changed more um, because I think most of the athletes nowadays would not cope with uh, a morning session and going to teach for the whole day and having yeah. another row at lunch and then having another <laughs> row at the end of the day. I think we wouldn't, uh, maybe, or maybe we would adapt, but it, it feels like we would not cope with that. Do you know, you know, the thing, the thing is there, Lawrence, that um, 
I, my sort of rowing heroes were guys from the British eight in the Montreal Olympics that had won a silver medal and um, they got rowed through by the East Germans in the last sort of 200 metres. Um, but they had been, they, they worked the whole time. So it was kind of a model that you, you did, you, you know, and I chose to be a teacher so I could row. And um, it wasn't until the 90s that, you know, full-time rowers became kind of the mid-90s that, you know, you were going to basically spend all your time rowing. So for me, I think for everybody, it was, it was just part of the territory. Um, the, the, the one who did it differently was Redgrave. And he got, a, you know, a friend of Mike Spracklin's, a sort of local philanthropist, to basically sponsor him, to pay him. Um, but otherwise, you know, you worked and you you just did it. And and this guy called Bob Janicek, who coached the um, Montrealite to a silver medal, he changed the sessions from because he came from the Czech Republic, where they had these long, you know, sixteen twenty k sessions, uh, UT UT two and all that kind of stuff. He changed them to shorter sessions to fit in with people's work. So um, it was very much part of the rower's psyche around about that time that you, you worked and rowed, and, um, and, and that's how it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just listening to that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's actually incredible, the, you know, the, the support um, that rowers have access to now. I think, obviously, I mean, around the world compared to some other sports, you know, rowers do do battle a bit, but it is it's amazing now that you know a lot of rowers can go, can be full time, um, full time basic basic professionals in their sport. Um, and you know, around the same time, and interested to to go back to your training. I know the you know the ergo was kind of introduced in the eighties, and I'm I'm interested to hear about the the cross training that you guys did, and and was the the ergo uh, a machine that you guys used um, in the nineteen eighties, or was it a bit, was it only really um, adapted a bit later on? Yeah, so um, we started. Th th there was this kind of electronic based ergo that I remember. That's the first time I saw an ergo um, with a handle you could change from stroke side to bow side. Um, but the most, the, the ergo that we used, and we only used it for testing, was the so-called guessing ergo, which was a kind of orange machine with a kind of large silver bar, which the handle was attached to. And, and it worked on uh, a sort of weight resistance. And it was really, really, you know, really felt tough to use. Um, and we started to use that for testing. Um not really for crew selection because we were kind of as a crew we were kind of selected um so you know the, the crews were the ergo wasn't used in in britain for crew selection so we would do it like twice a year we do these six minute tests and you'd count the number of revolutions that the wheel did in in six minutes and I think the best kind of scores on that is something were about run about 5,500 revolutions, which, you know, guys like Carpenan and Colby could do. Um, and the guys that I rode with, I was around about 5,100 revolutions. Um, and when we rode in the Olympic four, I can't remember we ever did an ergo test that year. In fact, I hardly, we didn't really do any weight training. So almost all our sessions were on the water. Um, 
normally we would do a kind of uh, weight circuit in the gym. This was when I was training for the Moscow Four. We'd do weight circuits and commando circuits, and that would be our cross-training. Um, we didn't do any cycling at all. Um, we did running. So before every gym session, we we do a run, and they were quite competitive, so we were all quite good runners. Uh, but but very little um, chance to cross train, and and I guess we were doing exercises. I, I, there was no notion of core stability then, so no notion of of you know training your core to be stronger. Uh, backs were very much sort of uh, bet. They were kind of rounded backs when you rode. So. Um, and I remember that, you know, I've seen some awful pictures of us doing power cleans. And, you know, nowadays you, you've got a nice straight back almost hollowed in at the base of your spine. But then we just had these rounded backs and um, very little notion of, of core stability. Um, and, and the joke of it is that we thought we were the best. We thought we knew what we were doing. And uh, I guess they must have had more notion of that in, you know, countries like East Germany and so on. But um, it, I think it just shows you that, you know, there isn't a, a single pattern for training that, that works. It's just what produces, you know, what works for your crew at the time. So in, in 84, almost everything was rowing. You know, I used to do some sessions in my single and that was it, really. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really cool. And I think that... Um I remember talking to Paul Jackson, who uh, coached uh, the lightweight four that uh, South Africa's lightweight four that won in London. And when he was rowing, he said that uh, just before the ergo, and I think people dislike the the two k ergo test, but uh, what they used to do was, uh, I think it was a, a timed thing of cleans. So they would set the the the, the weight bar at like uh, fifty kilos or something, and then they had to do cleans at like 34 strokes a minute or 34 cleans a minute until they like couldn't do keep up the the rate anymore until they fell behind and he said that that would kill people <laughs> so yeah yeah that sounds that sounds familiar yeah so i'm sure that there were lots of uh, different testing methods um going around uh, before the ergo came and uh kind of capitalized on this uh on the strength e uh, element of of rowing and then uh, the other thing i wanted to ask because uh, you just there's so much uh, good stuff that you you're dishing up here so you talk about the round uh, back and and that uh, maybe it was the the core strength and stuff but i always thought uh watching going back and watching the the uh, older rowing it's the round back always looks like it's it comes from rowing with a mac on and like having to reach for more length because there's obviously not as much uh, resistance on the spoon. So rowing a little bit longer gave you more more speed rather than being able to put more power down per stroke. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And and the technique really changed because it had to when Cleavers came in in the '92 Olympics. Um, but so when I started rowing, the kind of the, the, the model crew was the crew from East Germany, um, Britska, Mega, Semler, Decker. And I've watched some of their races recently, actually. And the stroke of the, that crew, um, if you look, he's, 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 he's not, he's, he rode tremendously long, but there would be, his shins were, were not vertical, but he would have this incredibly rounded back 
um, I want to say a bit like a hunchback, but it would be like a C shape is back. And of course you're right. That's, that's Macon's, but, um, you know, it, it would be about as far removed when I show, I've got it on my phone. When I show people and say, Oh, do you want to watch the final of the 1980 Olympics or something like that? Um, how rowing was then they're, they're really quite amazed to see how, how these guys rode. So that was a kind of model that we had. And, um, we didn't have quite as rounded backs as this guy, but um, we had no notion of, you know, core stability and great posture off the finish. Um, and so, and it was almost, how do you get length? Well, you can get it, you know, any way you can really. Yeah. And, um, and then, I mean, did and you struggle, still, did you guys struggle with like back injuries at that point or was it not really, a, so, not really a thing? No, so I've had back injuries because I had a long career and um, I've had, um, so I had back problems later on in my career, but not at that time. Um, we, I mean, we used to do a lot of kind of back work, like, you know, um, I remember doing dorsal rises off the end of a box or you kind of do, um, you, you do, you you'd, you'd lie off the end of a box and you kind of support yourself with your back and pull up, uh, like prone rowing, but you wouldn't have the front of your body supported really. So I think there was a lot of work going on to strengthen that bit of the body. I, I think, you know, if you want to do, we kind of thought that was the way you rode. And so the gym exercises supported that kind. So we, we had, you know, rounded backs in the gym for almost everything. And I think they were, they were training and supporting that way of rowing. So, um, and I think, again, as you said, we had the Mac on blade. So the load on the front end was less. Um, so we didn't have that many back problems. Yeah. Cause that's what I would, I would have guessed is that the, the Mac, the Mac on blade didn't have as much resistance through the water. So you could only row with so much power and it was more about finding the connection and, and, and having a longer stroke. And, and then when the cleaver blade came in, it would have changed because, people needed to hold their body more otherwise the load on the on the blade they you know you can just put more more force into the water um the other thing though that i wanted to to clarify is uh, you spoke a lot about the ut1 and ut2 and i know that those are uh, levels of of lactate and and used to measure training but maybe just explain that to to maybe some of the 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 listeners that don't uh, haven't used uh, used that system before yeah well it it, it to an extent, it's still a, a new a new system to me because those are terms which I think uh, we didn't know anything about UT1 or UT2 in terms of um, uh, those being particular sort of training thresholds at the time. But um, I guess typically speaking, you know, the idea that you could do UT2 training and hold a conversation um, and, and that, would, that would be a kind of key to... Um, to what effective UT2 was, that you would um, be able to talk. Um, we didn't have sort of pulse. We, we took pulses, you know, um, so it, UT, it would be a certain percentage of your, your maximum pulse rate. So I think our coach took pulses at the end of our training, but we never sort of had pulse watches or anything we could see what we were training by. Um, and, and the notion was, I think, that uh, we – we would always try and do – we didn't do much UT2 because we, we tried to do it harder. Um, uh, 
So I, I think our steady state, which was kind of what we called it then, um, you know, 45, 50 minutes, um, was closer to UT1, where you might get out a word, the odd word or two, um, but you really didn't want to talk or, 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 you know, say too much at all. Um, and, and, I, and I guess that's kind of what we thought was, was right for the, for the length of session, you know, that you put more effort in. Um, in, in terms of, in terms of the threshold work, you know, threshold is, or anaerobic threshold is, is kind of where you're on that margin where, um, you're, you're, you're not quite at your race pace, but you're, you're into a, into something that you think, oh, I'm not sure if I can quite sustain this. Um, but you could probably sustain it for, you know, quite a reasonable time. I, I can remember doing, um, you know, or I, I think I have a memory of doing a session on the Lake of Zarnen in Switzerland. Um, and I just had an argument with Dave Townsend, the guy behind me. Um, he'd said, you know, um, you've got to try and be smoother, Crossy, and, you know, row better. So I then said, well, you've got to work harder because you're just bloody soft. One of those stupid arguments that you have. And... Um, yeah. So the, the 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 two of us, I just went, I just went off the hardest I'd ever gone, and like the whole six k of that lake, and the six k back, I reckon I was on anaerobic threshold, um, on what was essentially a, a ut ut two slash ut one session, um, and and so it was always about pushing the limit up from what you thought, you know, one peg up from what the session was. Yeah, and. Uh... You know, it's actually, it's, it's fascinating to listen to the, the changes and, you know, listen to you talk about how the training worked back then. And, of course, uh, you have to kind of set up some sort of system where you can gauge the effort levels. And it sounds really hard because, I mean, you know, a lot of the programs today are based off like, a, a pol uh, like an almost pol polarized training model where a lot of, a lot of training is done in that, that zone one easy zone. Uh, easy level where you can have a lot of conversation you know you, you can have a conversation easily and i just from listening to you talk about it, it sounds really tough because you know we don't use the the ut model but we we base our intensity more around our heart rate and uh on rpe scale and yeah. the you know zone zone three that's starts where it starts getting you start cooking a bit and i i don't think conversation is something you should be having in zone three so you know, that training sounds really, really tough. Um, but, you know, just moving back to 1980, I'm, I'm, that's a, you know, 1980 is a really fascinating Olympic, uh, Olympic Games, mainly due to the, the political, you know, the, the, the political world at the time with boycotting at the, the Moscow Games. You know, chat to us a bit about that. And, you know, what was it like having all of this, um, all of this polit po political, um, stuff going around the, the rowing scene because you know rowing is usually quite removed from the, those kind of things so it must have been a an interesting experience yeah well it was bewildering i mean it, it i think it's in some ways similar to what happened with the postponement of the tokyo olympics in as much as you know the um the realization that you know the olympics could be affected by it was then the american president carter deciding you know that the Russians had invaded Afghanistan, so therefore the world shouldn't play sport with them. 
And, you know, at first it seemed like a ludicrous thing because, uh, you know, surely nothing could affect the Olympics. Uh, but gradually the, the campaign for the boycott got sort of stronger and stronger uh, from the Americans. And then, you know, the Americans' allies, so the British Prime Minister then, Margaret Thatcher, was, you know, um, a strong anti-communist. So she was very keen that Britain boycotted the Olympics. So we realised that we had, you know, we had to make our voice heard and um, we had to get political. So, you know, we organised campaigns, we, you know, lobbied our association, we went to meetings, we turned up at the House of Commons to listen to debates, we lobbied our MPs. And um, what the the result of all that was that the athletes mobilised opinion in Britain to ensure that the British Olympic Association voted, yes, we will attend the Games. And um, minus four sports, and the four sports who didn't go were kind of um, what I call establishment sports. And rowing was an establishment sport, but that shows how successful I think the rowers were. So shooting didn't go, horse riding didn't go, um, sailing didn't go, and uh, hockey didn't go. But so we we had to be political we had to mobilize and it was um you know there were teams like new zealand and uh, the the new zealanders learned in the middle of their flight that they they weren't going to the olympics um because they were boarding the flight to europe and they were boycotting the the australians learned as they were getting on the flight that their association had voted for them to go to the olympics it was really a very, very strange time. And um, I think in our event, we um, we were kind of, uh, we, we had a really tough event. We had a, guys come into our event. Um, the Swiss did a sort of, they had a, a medal double and a medal pair that came into the four because they, they wanted to show that they were really good crew and they thought the fours was a strong event. So we we kind of had a really an event which we didn't feel had been weakened for the boycott. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I guess as athletes that, that made us feel good about that, but you know, all the sponsors withdrew there, you know, we had very little kit and clothing. Um, we couldn't march in the opening ceremony. Um, People had to come back as soon as their event finished. You know, it was a real. You know, there were no flags flying in the Olympic Village, um, but the ordinary Russians were really. You know, we got loads of telegrams from like tractor factories in Siberia saying, "Thank you so much for coming. You make such a difference to the games." And and um, so it was very very strange. But we had to get politically active. Yeah, that's fantastic, and I think it's it's you know that's something that you you don't often hear, especially from from rowers is the you know that kind of level of political engagement to kind of pursue your dream and pursue the things that you're chasing and i mean if you look at the if you look at your advent you certainly had uh, had really big names still because of course east germany were really dominant in the event and also the, the soviet union who kept, got the silver medal were also really fantastic so i think it definitely didn't take away from uh, uh, your your rowing experience at, at the games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right. The, you know, funnily enough, in that, Olymp we, we were, you know, we were a consistent crew because we've got bronze medals in the world the two years before it. But um, the heat was a dreadful row, really. Um, and 
and we had to really nail it in the repechage and I, and I think that really helped us for the final and the Czechs who had won the silver medal the year before were in the final and as well as that Swiss four that had beaten us in Lucerne um, and um, who were to go on to win the world championships in Lucerne in 82 um, in a future year but um, it, it was a really you know tough competition but um, it, it was, um, you know, one of the best rows I think I've had, really. Um, but interesting enough, a, a sort of sidebar to that story is um, that Russian crew, we raced them in Mannheim, that, in, in the, one of the Walmart regattas, Mannheim in Germany. And they beat us by about nine or ten seconds, which I think, you know, is, is a huge margin. I mean, the East Germans used to beat us by about six seconds. We had a decent row. And then um, the, the season went on, and, and at the Lucerne Regatta, there were kind of rumours that the Russian team weren't going to attend. Uh, and their trailer was at Lucerne, but the Russian team wasn't. And that's because the, at Mannheim, they'd had random drug testing. And um, two guys from the Russian team, one female athlete and one male athlete, a guy called Sergei Pozdi from the men's four, um, had tested positive for steroids. And the Russians said it was kind of like, you know, fruit deficiency and it was just those two athletes. But they withdrew the whole team from um, the Lucerne Regatta, the, the pre-Olympic meet, as it were. And um, I got in a sort of brown paper envelope um, about a couple of weeks later, I got dropped through the door, the, a Mannheim medal sent to me because we were instituted as the the medal winners at Mannheim because the Russians were disqualified. And at the Olympics, this guy, Sergei Pozdiv, was walking around the boat park. It was almost like nobody had told him what had happened. And they just, you know, the Russian four just bunged somebody else in the two seat and, and, and just carried on. But that was kind of, um, I mean, we always knew that, you know, Eastern Europeans were using performance enhancing stuff. Um, but that was an, an interesting, you know, footnote to that race. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, the obvious, I mean, back then, just going on the, the performance enhancing stuff, how, you know, that discussion around performing enhancing uh, drugs and stuff, was it, you know, back then in, in the 80s, was it uh, quite a, a prevalent discussion, a prevalent topic uh, in the sporting world? And, you know, was it uh, something that you guys were worried about and uh, things like that? Well, I think part of it was, you know, one, you accepted. So so the East Germans and the Russians, so we talked about, you know, working, having careers and, and rowing internationally, which you tended to do in the West. And, and in the East, you were full-time professional athletes. So we knew that they were full-time professional athletes. And we also knew, you know, um, uh, a little bit about the, the, the system that they were using. But... I think it was a bit like, you know, the Berlin Wall. You just accepted it was there and you couldn't imagine it would be any different. Um, yeah. So eventually then, you know, it, it disappeared in 1989. Well, you just accepted that, that that's what you had um, to, to deal with. And so we we viewed ourselves as the best best in the West, but we had to beat an Eastern crew uh, to medal, uh, you know, one year it was the Russians or ne next year it was the Czechs. Um, and, and I guess because we were young, we just thought, well, we could do it. And, and it was pretty much, 
I think if we'd have thought how would, you know, we kind of had this conversation as a, as a crew uh, latterly because we kind of, we, we tend to talk once a week, you know, we, during this lockdown, we have Zoom conversations, that crew of 1980. And we kind of say we never really asked ourselves in between, say, 78 to 79 or 79 to 80, what do we have to do to win? Because you just accepted that the East Germans were going to win. You know, like, what do we have to do in terms of a training programme? How, how can we, um, you know, get, get a different result, maybe get a silver or get a gold medal? Um, and I guess then drugs would have come into the, you know, the scenario. Like, how do we combat the fact that they're using performance-enhancing drugs? But, you know, it was, I guess, kind of naivety and an acceptance, you know, like, so we were going for bronze medal in Moscow. That was it. You know, there was no way we were going to win a gold. And um, it was unlikely that we were going to win a silver. Um, and, and so it, it was not a bigger part of the conversation as you, as you might think. Okay. So do you say you meet once a week with your, with your crew from uh, 1980? Yeah. Um, we've been so um, yeah, we've been doing that for uh, for about the last nine or ten weeks um, on Zoom, and so we've been looking at all our old races and um, looking at the timesheets and going, you know, what might we have done differently, and what did you think about our coach, and what did you think about this race? Um, we do talk about other things, but it's really quite not. I think you know, it's our fortieth anniversary this year from Moscow Games, so. Um, yeah, and it's it's not that we've kept up with each other a lot through the years, but um, I'm minded a little bit about you know that book, the boys in the boat, um, of yeah. um, the, the the Washington crew, yeah. and they used to have regular meetings. You know, once they they got sort of um, a, a little bit older, um, and that's kind of like what we're doing now. That's really, really awesome. You should uh, record those, though, to, to put them up. I'm sure those are awesome conversations. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then the, talk us through the race then, because obviously now we've spoken a lot about the Olympics and about uh, going in there. So this is your first Olympics. There's all this drama, and you guys are, are in with a shot. And, and talk us through coming down the track and, and coming away with uh, your first Olympics and your first Olympic medal. Yeah, well, um, I, I think it was absolutely crucial. We'd gone through the repechage <clears throat> and we'd beaten the Romanians in the repechage, um, who were one of the crews in the final. And, um, you know, the time seemed slow now. It was fair, it was sort of stillish conditions, uh, a little bit of a, a headwind. We did 6.14, which then was a pretty quick time. And that gave us a lot of confidence. So um, it was also. Um, you could row it, it kind of you, it didn't matter what the East Germans were doing because you knew they were just going to go out in front and you knew the way the Russians rode they were just going to go out um, so our race was really with the Czechs the Romanians and the Swiss and I remember for the first quarter we were very much in our boat you know I think we were confident after the repechage that we'd have a quick first uh, 500 metres and we'd certainly be around about the, I think we went through 500 in about fourth, fourth place. Maybe the checks led us, but the boat was moving really well. And when we raced then, it was kind of, um, it was different to races now. You, you'd kind of have um, 
bursts of about uh, 15, 10 or 15 strokes. Um, and it wouldn't be like the racing now where a crew would sort of, you know, have a, an effort and, and they pretty much stay within the racing rhythm, but just put in an effort for 10 or 15 strokes. You kind of go, if you were going at 38, you, you go up to about 40 or something like that. You know, you, you put the rate up two strokes and then, you know, there'd be a call and you'd come back down to 38 again or something like that. So um, I remember having our first effort through the 500 metres and 500 metres gone. And that was good because it took us level with the checks that we, um, on one of our main opponents for the bronze medal. You're aware, even that we were on um, the far side of the course and the Swiss were in lane two on the other side. And, I mean, being aware that the Swiss weren't weren't up with us. And um, so there's, there's confidence in that. And then we were pretty much, you know, we'd be looking at our splits in terms of what we did as a crew. We pretty much were a third 500 crew. And um, we'd go through the K and we'd have this massive 20-stroke burst. So we'd kind of go up in the rating, and we'd really dig in. And everything, we put everything into that burst. And um, and so in the third quarter, we, we edged out on the Czech Republic. We didn't know what the East Germans and the Russians were doing. Uh, but it was such an effective third quarter, and the boat was moving really well, um, that we went right back on the Russians and um, we got a really good overlap on them. And I guess, um, you know, the, the, the chat's been in, in our fours meetings since, you know, why didn't we push on? Why didn't we try and win the silver? And I think that's basically because we left everything on the track in the third quarter. So the fourth quarter, the Russians moved away from us and the Czechs moved back on us, but they didn't, they, they didn't have the speed to get right back on us. And so really that was about defending our bronze medal position um, because we'd left everything on the track in the third quarter. And I guess endurance wise, we, we didn't have, you know, what it took to hang on to those Russians. But, you know, to be quite honest, it didn't really matter because, you know, all I ever wanted in my rowing was an Olympic medal. And so, I, I, and, you know, the idea, um, I, I didn't want a gold medal. You know, that seemed beyond me so the bronze medal was just something I thought right I can die happy now because I've won an Olympic medal and that that was what mattered so it was it was an incredible experience yeah and um I mean it's uh it must be an incredible feeling saying that and then you know you go to you know 1984 and you're winning the gold medal and after winning that gold medal in 1984 did your, your perspective on the rowing change when you were moving forward for the the rest of your career? I mean, um, what was the what was the yeah. the yeah? What was the perspective moving on to 1988? So so basically, um, I I had this thing. Uh, so being you know when you win the Olympics and you're Olympic champion, <clears throat> you've got this thing that every you know this Olympic gold medal that is you know the most prized possession in terms of what you could get as a sportsman. But I never thought of myself as an Olympic champion. So what I did, I created a kind of two-tier system. Like there were Olympic champions who deserved it. Like, you know, someone like Steve Redgrave, who was, uh, or people um, like Usain Bolt, or like when I was racing, it was like Steve Ovet or Sebastian Coe, the, sort of the, the middle distance runners. 
Daley Thompson, the triathlete. And people who happened to have a gold medal, you know, that ended up with it, like me. Um, so I was in the second tier. So um, so essentially, I, I think I, I had that view of myself for about 15 years or so. Um, I had this thing which kind of was the, the highest award you could get in sport, and it was kind of like, what, me? You know, because I'm not sure I really deserve this which was patently ludicrous. I mean, you know, I know now that was an absolutely ridiculous thing to be thinking and doing to myself. But, um, you know, that that's how it was. So um, the next year in 1985, I did a pair. And um, we were racing the Pimenovs from uh, the Soviet Union. And um, I never really seen myself as a pairs oarsman and um you know a bit, bit not sort of smooth enough and so on so we, we'd had quite a, we'd had quite a good season we raced the Pimenovs in um Lucerne and they've beaten us by seven seconds and we'd had a really good championships we had a great heat and um good semi-final and my coach Jim Clark who coached me at school uh, Mike Sprackling was coaching us then as well, actually, but he coached me at school. Before we went out for the final, um, he looked me in the eye and he said, you know you can win this, don't you? And I looked back at him and I had a thought bubble going, you must be mad, because in my head, I had settled, you know, thinking a silver medal would be good and that we couldn't beat the Pimenovs. And, um, and, and I think that's... Um, you know, uh, that comes from the same mentality that I had, that I wasn't really good enough to compete at the top level with these guys that won gold and silver. So in, in the race, the Pimenovs just went off. and You know, we never saw them, but we were rowing really well. It was a really strong tailwind and the water was getting rough down the course. And um, we got to a thousand metres at Haselwinkle. Um, and I hadn't seen the Pimenovs for the whole race. And all of a sudden, they're... they're they're sort of uh, the stern of the yellow empacker comes into my sort of into my eye eye line, and straight away my mind, rather you know like we're coming back on them, right? Let's really move on in the third quarter. I kind of thought like, what's going wrong here? You know, why is this happening? Um, I started noticing things like the water getting rough. I started noticing the other crews around, and um, and we started to tighten up. And in the third quarter, the rowing got. Uh, my rowing got worse. I stopped making calls and because I was the one that was making the calls in the pair. And um, and that went on with, the you know, uh, through the 1500. And then all of a sudden, my partner was screaming at me, saying lots of swear words and things like that. And, and I just and, and something clicked and we just kind of took off like. You know, all of a sudden we just went to about 42, 43 and uh, the water was ever so rough and, you know, it didn't seem to matter. And we just shot right back on the Pimenovs. And when we crossed the line, like it looked like we were up, it looked like we'd beaten them. And um, we had to wait ages for the photo finish. And in the end, we'd lost by 800s. Um, and, you know, I look on that race now as if I'd have believed what my teacher had said, you could win this race. If I'd have seen myself as a sort of, you know, as up there with, you know, the the, the greatest in the sport, um, I think that, you know, the result might have been different. But I had this kind of, um, call it a hang up. I think that might be one one way of looking at it. 
Um, so I love to race. I love to compete. Um, I love to come through from behind in races. Um, but maybe I should have had a better view of myself as an athlete, um, particularly after the Olympics. But I think it's, it is a hard uh, thing to get around because especially you grow up watching all these rowers and you know uh, you, you, you idolize um, all these athletes that you've watched uh, race multiple times and then when you get into the, the senior rowing scene, suddenly you're racing those people. And I think it is hard to make the mind shift of like, okay, well, you know, I do idolize them and I do think that they are amazing, but now I'm going to start thinking of myself as one of these people and, and, and worthy of, of racing them and, and taking them on. Yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of think, you know, um, the highest, I mean, it's a, so in the Olympic four of nine, you know, the, the guys that I was rowing with, they had no trouble seeing themselves as, as, you know, potential gold medalists, you know, cause frankly, they'd seen, I was quite, I'm quite a short rower. They'd seen people like me, like the Sell brothers. Um, cause I, uh, worked at Hampton school. So I taught both the Sell brothers. Um, and, and you came back with this gold medal and did an assembly and showed the, the medal around and both brothers were in that assembly. And the, the, um, Greg Searle, then he remembers like, oh, he's not very tall. Like, he's as tall as me. If he can win an Olympic gold medal, maybe I can. So th there was never that block about Eastern European crews almost being, the, you know, the, the ones that always won. So the mentality is different. Um, you know, it's, it's like in the British squad now, it's almost, you know, that, you've really got to be say you have to say to your crewmates we're aiming to win we're aiming for a gold medal you know you can't ever say we're just aiming for a medal because that's not how it is uh, but we you never had that mentality on those days and i think you know there's a lot more that's possible now um you know things are quite open at the top so i think it's 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 more it's more available people can make things happen yeah, and it's about like it's like the culture of winning as well. It's the I think you were maybe you part of the the start of the culture. I mean, the British team has a huge culture of of winning again and again now, and I think that it doesn't just happen. It takes time to build that belief. And you know, as uh, we often speak about, like how we've learned that uh, we're starting to learn that in our team. You know, we watch those the lightweight guys win the 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 gold we've seen uh older guys come back with a bronze and it gives you guys it gives the team belief that okay well the program is working and and we can put trust in in the in the process and in the team and then you know slowly you you build a bigger team and a stronger team and those results become more normal and i think it doesn't yeah, yeah, just happen absolutely. overnight it takes a long time to for a country or a team to develop that yeah yeah and so, Martin, moving moving on, you, you got back into the Cox Four, and I'm I'm just interested to to listen to because I mean, Great Britain had a, a Cox Four and a and a Men's Four at uh, the 1988 Games. How did that work between the two crews? Was there was there one one boat that was higher than the other? Um, and I don't even I don't even no, I'm interested to hear if it was within the same team or was one boat just how it was because some people geographically were suited to row with each other. Um, yeah, it's, good. it's a good question. Exactly. <clears throat> so, um, so what happened there was um, 
this pair that I did with this guy called Adam Clift, um, we were silver medalists in 85. In 86, we, we won Lucerne, but we missed a medal in the Worlds. We came fourth. And then in 87, Steve Redgrave was with this guy called Andy Holmes, and they decided that they would double up, and they wanted to win two gold medals at the Olympics. So they would double up in the World Championships in 87. So they essentially had been world champions in the Cox pair in 86. They, they came and, you know, beat us in the Coxless pair at the trials. So we were kind of left without a boat. And there were these other two guys called Maxie and Garrett. Um, and they'd gone to be coached by Mike Spracklin at Leander Club. And so we got put into a Cox four for the 1987 world championships. So it was kind of a marriage of convenience. And, um, we had a storm in uh, World Championships until the final, where it was a, the, the bags fared course. So we broke the World Championship record in the in the in the heats. Did a really fast time. We were absolutely flying, and um, and in the final, there's a there's a big sort of bank along the the cliffs at uh, bags fared. Um, and so the wind was blowing directly from that side. So if you were in lane one, you got a medal. If you were in lane six, you uh, you came six. Um, so there was no um, there were no systems about you know unfair conditions then. So we um, happened to be in lane five. Um, so we ended up coming. Uh, I think did we come fifth or fourth? So we missed we yeah. missed the medal. Um, and um, but obviously the crew had potential. So we had our coach, um, a guy called David Tanner, um, who was coaching us for, um, he, he coached me in the Moscow Olympics. Um, and pretty much we were a crew, um, you know, an entity. And I guess what happened was that um, the Coxless Four had a good championships in 1987 so they were an entity too and they had the same coach so they never really um tried to do anything like they never tried to say what if we take this guy out of the cox four and put him in the coxes four or what if we move people around um the aim was you know we've got this coxes four we've got this cox four let's try and get some guys in the eight as well and we've got steve and andy in the coxes pair and the cox pair um and the what happened with that was that um, during that season in '88, we had a we had a terrible season. I, I think I trained the hardest of any any sort of season that that year in 1988. But we were the slowest in the season. We were off the back in all the regattas. Lucerne, we came tenth, um, and um, I guess they should have broken us up then, and they should have looked to do something different. But Spracklin, I mean, because he's got quite a big ego, Mike. So Spracklin decided, well, I'm going to drag this four back. So he hadn't been coaching us, but he took over our coaching from David Tanner and um, he kind of dragged us back um, from being 10th place finish to being, you know, a crew that could um, compete in the finals. And um, and so we went. We went to Seoul very much on sort of level playing field with the, with the other four, um, and that had one race which was it was the most is the craziest race I've ever been in. It was a semi final of um, the Cox Fours. There were a lot of entries, I think, in that event about twenty two, twenty three entries because they didn't have limits then. And we were at last place, and we went into five hundred meters, um, you know, a length off the back. 
uh, 500 metres to go, uh, a length off the back of the field, and we ended up coming through in the last 500 metres um, and winning the race by about 0.4 of a second or something like that. Um, and that's where I got the nickname from the cross factor because one of the TV commentators said, oh, you know, that's the cross factor at work. Um, always loves to sprint at the end of races. Um, tried to do it in the final, but um, never worked. And we came in fourth in the final. <laughs> That's awesome. The cross factor. We're going to use that. Um, so I, I, we have to just uh, mention a, a recurring theme that seems to just crop up uh, um, on many of our interviews on the the weather at the Olympic Games and at the, at these regattas. And you said, oh. Back then, there wasn't a, a fairness committee, but we've had plenty of people on the show um, complaining about uh, the <laughs> about the conditions and the fairness of um, of of um, these Olympic Games. I mean, of the of just of regattas in general, uh, even today. Yeah, well, you know, I uh, Copenhagen was a seminal moment for me, really, and. Um, it was interesting because on that the morning of that semi-final race in the 88 Olympics, um, I was um, I'd never slept that the night, so I you know I was and I kind of had a bad feeling about it. And we came down to the course, and there was a crosswind blowing right across the course uh, from um, giving shelter to the lane, we, and we were on the far lane with no shelter, and it just looked like Copenhagen again, maybe not quite as strong. Um, but our coach then, David Tanner, went up to Tommy Keller, who was then running the regatta, and basically said, you know, you, you can't let this happen again, um, you know, like you let happen in um, – because I'd been quite nasty to Tommy Keller in Copenhagen in 1987, and I think he felt guilty. So um, he, he decided um, to, to sort of schedule a delay. And so I, I went back to the Olympic Village. I got like an hour and a half, two hours sleep. And the racing was in the afternoon. And, you know, and then the semi-final happened. Um, and we got that great result. So that seemed fortuitous. But since then, I've been really strong on, um, you know, trying to get fair conditions for athletes and, you know, doing the best with the Fairness Commission. Um but I think you can see, I mean, even with FISA, they had, um, you know, time trials in Rotterdam, you know, because the, the course was ridiculously unfair at the World Cup in Rotterdam uh, last year, as you probably know. And um, even in the time trials, you had Oli Zeidler, um, you know, and his time trial result put him in the C final. Um, e even with a system of, um, you know, doing the best that you can and lane reallocation, um, you, you, you can't get, you know, the, the sort of fair conditions that you want. And, um, you know, that was the case at Dorney for the 2012 Olympics where, you know, everybody knew that, knew that course, that the conditions were unfair and, um, people that are on the fairness commission and FISA, they will always wait and they will always look for more evidence rather than take a decision or, you know, based on what people, you know, around that know the course. It, it was the same in finals on uh, Carapiro in 2010, one of the days of the finals. Then I can't remember which day. 
So I, you know, you can't mitigate against conditions, but you can you can try your best. And I've always, you know, because I used to be the athlete representative on the on FISA. Um, that's what you try and achieve. Yeah, and I'm interested. You know, do you? I mean, it's it's such a t- difficult thing to get right, and it's 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 one place in the sport where you know it, it is just a it is just a tricky thing. Um, the the unfairness. I mean, it is an outdoor sport, so you can't always get you know the perfect perfect answer. But I'm I'm interested to hear if you you know are you do you think the the way it operates at the moment is 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 the the perfect way, or is there any other? You know what are the conversation? What are the conversations around what other methods you can try? I mean, one of the things that you know that I've I've thought about is letting the the athletes and the and the coaches choose the lanes based off what seating they get off semifinals or whatever previous race they did. Obviously, that introduces a quite a, a huge effort on on your logistics to be able to manage that but you know what what's the discussion around the different methods around well, trying to I, mitigate i thought they tried did they try that in was it belgrade or was it Linz? they tried that system i think it was in belgrade the first they, they tried it with non-olympic events didn't they and um i think the course at belgrade was quite fair so uh, you know not every athlete bothered to go up and choose their their lane number and i think fisa as a fisa as a body is very conservative so, um, you know, and I found that when I was an athlete representative and I find it, find it now that they, they, um, you know, that, that was an idea pushed by the athletes commission. And to be quite honest, it should have, should have been tried, um, they should have given it more of, um, an effort, you know, in the Olympic class events, uh, because you know, if the course was unfair or there was a wind blowing, you can bet that everybody would turn up at the particular time stated to say this is the lane that I want. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think so. I think it was worth a bigger trial and and just to get a conversation going. But I think FISA being quite conservative decided you know to test it out that little bit and and then not take it any further. Um, you know the, the the Belgrade course was it, it didn't matter what lanes you were in on the on the test they had in the Belgrade course. So I, I think not every athlete took up the opportunity to go and collect their lane numbers or make the choices. Yeah, and I think most yeah. of the time people are going to stick to those lanes. You know, most of the time they're going to follow what the race before chose, what the race after chose, and you know it's only every now and then where it's going to be something big and 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 something worthwhile having you know that most of the time i don't think it is going to be an issue yeah absolutely yeah and i think i mean it is one one thing that that appeals to me about that kind of idea is that you know it kind of puts responsibility more into the athlete and the coach's hands which i think is you know better and uh at least when you know if it's a bit unfair then you know, you give a little bit of some sort of control to the athletes and the coaches and say, listen, you guys, you know, you did really well in the semifinal. You know, you can choose. Obviously, it's unfair, but you can choose your own destiny a bit. And and I think it also adds a little bit of a str- strategic and tactical element to it. Um, although I think for race organizers, it would be a nightmare to try and get everyone to get the lanes in and then try and, you know, get the, 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 the races updated. Oh, I know. And for commentators too, you know, that's one of the things um, that, that's always um, difficult. You know, when you're doing commentary and there's a, late, there's a lane change, 
I remember doing commentary and there was a lane change in um, Plovdiv. I think it was at the World Cup regatta. Um, and there were three U.S. women's crews in one of the races, uh, uh, I think one of the finals, and um, and they changed all the numbers. And unless you knew an athlete in the U.S. women's crew, you had no idea of who was who, which crew was, you know, one, two or three, because nobody, nobody sought to get the lane change to the commentators. So, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously, we're way down, you know, we were down the food chain, but... Um, there are, you know, to be fair, logistical challenges with that lane sort of renaming. But the Athletes Commission came to us and, and you know, we said, no, that's fine. You know, you, you do that. We'll, we'll just work with it. And um, so we didn't want to be, we didn't want to stand in the way of what the Athletes Commission wanted. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, we're, on, we're chatting about the commentating and, of course, it's it's... It's for all the listeners out there. It would be a good point to to chat about like how did you get involved in the commentating and uh, how did the part the journey start um, to where you are now commentating at the at all the world rowing events. Well, I think you know I love being a part of rowing, and so very much my motivation was you know to be there, to be with international athletes, to be, you know, and, and chat and make friends um, and race, you know, the whole scene I loved. And I very much wanted that to carry on for as long as I could. So I carried on rowing for a long time. Uh, but when, when um, I was uh, forced to retire, um, th- there was th- the potential to kind of do something on BBC Radio um in 1995 and i kind of remember um you know phoning up someone at bbc radio and they got back to me and i said you know i'm going to the world cups um as i was there as athlete representative anyway so they didn't have to pay for me to go um and and they said yes you know we'll take a report from you a 45 second report and um and i remember queuing up at a payphone um, to, to do a report on the Lucerne regatta in 1995. And I basically spent the whole of the afternoon of the finals writing this report. I hadn't really watched the racing. You know, I was so nervous about what I was going to say. And I gave the report in a very stern voice. Um, what if I ask to well, sum yeah, up yeah. Uh, no, I know. Well, it's amazing what you can put into a 45-second report. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, and they basically said, you know, that's no good. You sound too serious. Um, and I said, oh, this is my first one. Sorry. And the lady at the end said, try smiling when you say it. Um, and so the, the next year, uh, we had Redgrave and Pinson in the Olympics and BBC Radio allocated uh, a commentator bloke bloke called Alan Green, who was the BBC's top soccer commentator. And um, I really got on with him. And I just learned so much from him about how to commentate and, you know, how to use your voice. And um, and and we went to, we worked at the Atlanta Olympics and did that race where Redgrave and Pinson um, won Britain's only gold medal. And so I was pretty much a radio commentator. And then in, in 98, um, I, uh, I got asked, did I want to, um, to go to TV? So um, 
1999, I was the TV commentator for BBC with Gary Herbert, and then um, and that was a you know a great move. Um, and then in 2000, I got ill. I kind of had a bit of a breakdown, and uh, I wasn't able to go to the. I was scheduled to go and work at Sydney Olympics, uh, but I couldn't couldn't go and compete. Um, sorry, not compete. Couldn't go and work. So uh, that was a pretty backward step. Um, so I kind of went, uh, once I recovered, I got back in doing radio reports um, from 2001. But um, there'd always been these little bits of work. I think FISA was doing DVD commentary then at the time. Um, so they'd make a DVD of the World Championships after the World Championships and sell it to athletes and coaches. And I got into sort of doing rowing summary on that dvd with a commentator called david goldstrom because i think he knew i did bbc stuff the the radio um and then um and then the system changed to you know from doing the dvds to actually doing race commentary and and to have the system they do now and i think because i'd been you know established with fisa um and people i mean people seem to think i know a lot about rowing and you know i think you know, I, I do know a lot about Rowan, but most of the stuff on commentary, you because you can't possibly know all these athletes, but you don't know who they're going to have the picture of. So you you basically got to work hard and research for each each event, and I put a lot of effort into research. Um, yeah. So I kind of had this thing, you know, that right. So I know, you know, the athletes, and um, I think with guys like Greg Searle that I commentate and Sarah Cook, you know, they, they know an awful lot about the sport, but, um, you know, I'm the one that does the research and has, you know, the clubs and the coaches and that, and, um, and they're the ones that can come in and do the, the punditry on, on, you know, how various crews are going, but it, it's been a lot of hard work, but it's kind of, you know, um, one of those things is do what you love and the money will follow. So, you know, I love talking about rowing. I love commentating on rowing. And, you know, the fact that someone is willing to pay you a small amount for doing it is just like a complete bonus. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it must be really tricky, though, because there's, I mean, each regatta, each day, there's I don't know, hundreds of athletes coming down the track and, and you never know exactly how it's all going to pan out. And you uh, only have about seven, six to seven minutes a, a race to to discuss everyone. So I think it must be it must be quite a nightmare. And I think that that behind the scenes work uh, really comes through. Um, and I mean, talking about good regattas and and commentary, like we have to talk about the 2019 World Champs because I don't know for us there was just something really cool about this regatta there was so many races that were amazing to watch the the competitiveness throughout the fields were on another level and i mean it must have been really exciting uh, to go into that regatta and and to to commentate on some of those races yeah it, it, it was it, you know that that was a very interesting regatta i think for all of us and particularly for me i felt um I felt quite stressed during that regatta at times because um, normally at world championships or when I do world cups, um, I would, um, I would arrive and then get a bike and go up to the start, talk to the coaches, a lot of whom I used to race against um, and just see what was going on, get, get some of the gossip and um, you know, who was doing what, in which crew. Uh, but 
at the Lynch Championships, um, the, the decision was made that we were going to do every single race, um, which was, you know, incredible, really. So um, we, we literally got in that commentary box from about nine o'clock and, um, and we were there till about five o'clock on some days. And, um, and we had something like about half an hour, 40 minutes for lunch. So I found that whole experience quite challenging, really, um, in as much as I like to get a feel of what's going on for the regatta by talking to people. But you couldn't I couldn't really get that in Linz because it was it was such a demanding schedule. Um, and we only had two of us, I think, to start off um, the commentary. So I kind of say, you know, normally we have three for the finals, you know, that probably you need a rotor of commentators to do that effectively. Um, I don't know, that's a bit of a rant from me at that stage, but um, it, it is, it's quite a thing to do every, to do every televised race at Regatta. Yeah. So which was your, which was your most exciting race of, uh, of the, the Lens World Champs? Oh, no, there's no competition for that one. I mean, I, I got excited about lots of races, but the, the men's singles race was just <laughs> insane. Yeah. The men's singles um, race was insane yeah i think that's that's the only way to put it you know i i think um i think that the pitches worked really well i think they had good coverage of that race so i think that that worked really well um but you had um you know uh zeidler zeidler leading through 500 and then you had Bruyning coming through it was like what is Bruyning doing and he was leading the whole yeah. of the third quarter yeah. yeah and then you had um Sferi Nielsen and Chettle Borsch take it up and and um and literally you had no idea of what the re well you didn't know what the result was going to be until the line across and it could have been any number of you know I think as late as sort of 150 meters to go it could have been any one of three or four that might have won it yeah, yeah and i mean even I uh, even all the way yeah. it was it was a, it was a anyone's anyone's game to who could take the gold and and not only just the gold is uh you know you had uh, grisconis and cynic not even that far behind it in the in four, uh, fifth and sixth so it wasn't even like they were out the picture as well it wasn't it was the whole race you were did, did, did Grisconis get fourth, in fact, in that race? I, I can't remember. I know Sinek was sixth, but they, they were close up. He might have got yeah, right back at the end. Yeah, he came with a proper charge in the last uh, 250. Um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure if he got fourth, but he was. He definitely put his, his hand up at the, at the end there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a race. Uh, you can just see us all yeah, and, uh, going off on it already. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Martin, because you know, for for Lawrence and I watching 2019 and more more so the whole Olympiad, especially in the men's single skulls, is definitely the sense that the event has opened up where you have so many scholars that are at the top of their game and so many scholars that you know can win the Olympic medal. In the past, it's kind of been the situation where there's maybe one, two really top scholars that are in the in in the race for the gold medal like last last cycle of course you know had Demia Martin and um Mahe with the with a huge race in the final but now it seems like there's a you know there's six guys 
that can turn up and win a gold medal. And it's really exciting. And I want it, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah. And it's interesting how it's happened, you know, in terms of uh, the way that the athletes have come into it. Obviously, Oli Zeidler is like a complete wild card because his trajectory has not been like anyone's that I've ever known in sport. You know, but he's there and he's he's made the transition from swimming ever so quickly. And and then you've got Sferi Nielsen, and it seems with him, you know, he's got his new coach, Thomas Paulson, and, you know, that's really given him um, a kind of pace, you know, controlled pace through the middle that saw him win those two World Cups and put him right in a, you know, medal position in the World Championships. So I, I think that's that's great coaching. And the Danish system is has always been a system where, you know, when you get quality athletes, that they they nurture them and nurture them and nurture them. You know, there's not so many athletes in Denmark that um, that they can afford to sort of, uh, you know, drop them or anything like that. So I think a bit like Fiu Bjerriksen came through for the Olympics in London in 2012 and got a silver medal. I mean, I think Sferi Nielsen's got had a fantastic coach and that's really put him in the frame. And then Chettle Borsch has always been... <laughs> you know, a, a quick single sculler. Uh, but, you know, coming out of Olaf Tufta's shadow and um, and it, it's been marvellous to have the same coach, um, uh, Johan, uh, Johan Floyd, what's uh, the Norwegian coach name's just gone? Yeah, um, it's Johan, I think. I just don't know his surname. Yeah, uh, I think Lars Johan Floyd, in, um, the Norwegian coach. Um, so just to have that coach, so he's really uh, come through to a, a sense where he can challenge. And then Sinek, I, I, I heard Sinek was going for the double this year. So even the competition. Um, yeah, I know, saw was, he, he went into the double with Lucas Pedrezel from the, from yeah, the from pair. The pair. Yeah, because obviously they didn't yeah. qualify for the games in the, in the pair. Yeah, and then <clears throat> it's interesting with someone like Grisconis because, I mean, he can be such an erratic performer, you know, both in the double and the single. Um, but, you know, he, he clearly has these fantastic races up his sleeve, which he can pull out at the big time. Um, and, you know, and he wasn't that far off winning a medal. So, um, and you kind of think about Demir Martin as well. You think, well... You know, he's probably got another couple of great races in him. I know it hasn't worked out for him so much. So how yeah. many people is that? That's about five scholars, maybe six scholars that you could win. Yeah. And we haven't even mentioned the, the world record holder, Robbie Manson, who has uh, obviously been off form recently and not haven't really emulated that world record-breaking race that he has put out. But... I always remind myself that he did row a 6.30. And if that turns up at a final and he's on 6.30 pace or 6.30 form, what that adds another span in the works that can change the dynamic of the well, field. Well, yeah, except I, I think he's doing – I, I mean, we don't know who New Zealand are going to come up with now with the games postponed to 21, but I think he's in a double with John Story. Yeah, Jake, you're behind yeah. the times here. He went into the double and why he went into the single. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying there's lots of exciting things that can happen in this, yes. in this event. The options are, are wide open. Um so Martin, so we have we have more questions, but like 
so we have our quick fire questions if you've uh, listened to any of the the episode and they're like yeah. kind of fun questions that we ask all our guests but because you have such a wealth of rowing knowledge we've added like a couple more kind of quick fire questions so you can answer them however which way you want and if you don't want to answer them we can uh, we, we we'll just roll over them but you've got uh, a couple more uh, interesting questions that uh, we'd love to hear your answer so the the, we're going to start with which world record do you think is the, the most impressive? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I, I, so I think the world record we were talking about, um, you know, that's one that springs to mind. But um, one that uh, I, I'll never forget is six is when the Kiwi pair did 608 in the London Olympics heat. I mean, I had no idea that conditions were that quick and Dawn is not that fast, of course, really. Uh, the water wasn't that warm because it hadn't been a hot summer. So I think for them to do 6-8 in the heat was was phenomenal. Um, so for me, that's the best world record. And I know it I know it messed up everyone's prognostics that the pair was that quick. And yeah. the British the British team didn't even use 6-8 as their gold medal time. I think they still use 6-10, I think, for uh, for uh, several years. Yeah, so, for me, that would be the best world record. There are a couple. Yeah. I mean, like, so no one else has gone within, uh, I think, five seconds of that world record or around about their four and a half. And, but the men's four as well is also uh, no one has gone that close to, to that record either. I think, what's that, Jake? It's, it's uh, 5.36. 37. And is it, it might be 37. I saw them do yeah. that race, and that was in the heat at Lucerne, yes. and that was blisteringly fast. But um, the, the notion is that coaches are saying the four is a slow event, uh, or relatively slow event, because, you know, it doesn't come close to the prognostic time. Yes. And so um, that might influence coaches' choices about boat priorities and so yeah. on. But that is a great world record, yeah. And then which world yeah. record do you and think will be the next to, to go? Which world record do you think will be the, the most likely to, to drop a couple seconds? Well, um, I think that is a very, very good question. And I guess from saying, you know, what we have done about the men's four, um, you know, I think if the Australians get their act together and maybe don't wheel spin as much, you know, get a really strong four out, I think they could be really competitive in the olympics um you know if the conditions a nice tailwind blowing at one of the regattas that they're at, i think they could you know make that 537 look vulnerable um so i think the the men's four one is up i think the one that's never going to go um is the women's single race you know uh Nikova's record of is it 707 or something yeah. i can't remember what she did back in seville um but i i, I you know i would look at the, the chances of the men's um the men's four really i think you know there's there's some great athletes in those combinations and and you know that is quite an old record now and uh, get a nice strong tailwind i think that one could go um just to uh, you know just to add to that conversation i think you know lawrence and i we we do a lot of uh well lawrence does actually <laughs> but we do a lot of uh you know, after every event, we take all the race times and we look at the prognostics and the records. And I'll tell you what, after looking at a lot of the data, Lawrence will agree with me on that. The world record that is most likely dropped from our point of view will be the, the lightweight women's double because every year, a couple races, they get so close to that, um, 
to that world record. And I think it is a bit of a, uh, a dynamic of lightweight racing, but I do think that if you give one of the, anyone, you know, any of the top performers in that event on a tailwind, that record will drop. And I think it will drop not just by, you know, a small margin, but I think it will be quite a big margin when that record yeah, drops. And, yeah. And th th they have got some fantastic crews in that event. It's, it's, you know, it's quite a close event, isn't it? And, yeah. um, you know, with the Romanians and the Dutch and obviously the New Zealanders there, just, just to name three. I think you might be right. Yeah, because yeah. I think we were looking so, at Linz. They were at Linz in the pair. I think the closest anyone got was like uh, 10 or, or 12 seconds uh, to the, the record, whereas like there were six people within three seconds of the, of the record in the lightweight double. Wow. That's a really good stat. Yeah. Um, so the next, the next question, Martin, is what do you think is the most competitive boat class at the moment? Ooh, well, um, <clears throat> clearly nobody knew which men's single was going to win um, at the start of the regatta. I mean, you, you know, um, and we've talked about how close that, that boat class was. Um, I think, to be quite honest, um, the women's eights was a great race um, with Australia and New Zealand, and that was so competitive. But I think um, the Americans probably had a bad day at the office, or and, and so that's going to be really close in that event. Um, but I, I guess I would look at the men's eights, and to be quite honest, I think the distance between the Germans and the Dutch was just minimal. You know, the Dutch nearly got back on the Germans. I think the British will come into it a lot more. Um, I think they had, you know, kind of a lot of young guys in that eight. I think the British um, will be, they, they won the heat, didn't they, in that, in that, um, in Linz. I think they'll be closer in the Tokyo Olympics. And um, and I reckon, you know, the Australians with their program will be around about two. So I, I'd probably go for the men's eights. Um, so continuing, continuing on the men's eights, do you think Germany will be able to hold onto that gold medal spot? And I know they've been so dominant and the German eights has always been a dominant crew. But I must say what is happening, in, especially last season with the Dutch eight especially, do you think they'll be able to hang on to, you know, that gold medal spot or who do you think will be able to pip them? And in what kind of situation or what do you think will have to happen for them to, to come off that dominant streak? So as it stands now, I think the Dutch are the only ones that can beat them. I think the British will get closer, but I'm not sure technically if they've got, you know, the finesse to make their eight move at that kind of speed. I don't think they quite got the same, capacity in the eight that they had in 2016, uh, the same experience. I think they're getting there. So I think it'll be the Dutch. I think, you know, with Simon van Dorp and Ma Martin Herkman's in the eight, you know, the guys from America um, in the middle of that boat um, and the stroke man back in, you know, the seat making that beautiful rhythm. Um, they'll, they are the eight really that could overturn the Germans. And I think it's definitely possible the thing about the Dutch is that they're not always consistent, whereas the Germans have been extremely consistent the whole time. You, you know what you're going to get from the Germans, and um, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get from the Dutch eight in terms of 100% consistency. So um, 
I think the Dutch are the ones to overturn the Germans. I, I would like to see the Germans win. I think, you know, they've had a great um, season. I love the way they row. I love the way they paddle. And I love the way they race. Um, I love the way they brought flexibility into their racing, you know, where they're not necessarily in front at 500 every time during this Olympiad. And they still manage to manufacture a, a win from that. Um, so um, I guess marginally my favourites would be the Germans. Yeah, it's definitely going to be an interesting area to watch. So um, the next question is, so we, ha we have this running, actually a running question and it's been on our, our Instagram quite a bit because we always ask uh, what's the, the best race of all time and often it comes up with uh, these pairs uh, and the, these great uh, pair combinations. So we, we posed a question on our, on our Instagram between uh, like who would win the race if you put if you had uh, Redgrave and Pinson in the pair, uh, uh, Drugan and uh, Tompkins in a pair, and Hamish and Eric Murray obviously in the pair, and and if they raced on the track, who do you think would be the greatest uh, the greatest pair? Yeah, well, I think um, I think you know out of those. Um, the the one iconic race I remember from Redgrave and Pinson was um, the the Lucerne in '94 where they 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 were down against the Germans Strepoff and Holzerbein and the whole race and they finished it and, and broke the world record but they just got back in the very last part of the race so they they basically rode down behind the crew and came back through in the end um, I think with Drew Ginn and Tompkins that Tompkins they would they would lead out at 500 metres um, in that race. Um, I think that probably going through the 1,500 metres, I'd have Murray and Bonds in front of that race. I'd say Redgrave and Pinson would be in, connection, in, in contact with both of those pairs. So I think you'd probably have Murray and Bond half a length in front of Tompkins and Gin. And then you'd, you'd have maybe, you know, just about half a length behind or less Redgrave and Pinson. Uh, the one factor coming into the last 500 metres is um, Ma Matthew Pinson's incredible abili ability to sprint. Um, so we saw that in the 2004 Olympics um, where they beat the Canadian uh, world champions with a you know, phenomenal sprint to the line. Um, that having been said... Uh, I think that the, the Kiwi pair, um, when they were having a bad day at the office, which was the 2010 World Championship final, where, where basically Andy Hodge and Pete Reid led them for most of the race, and then somehow Hamish Bonds manufactured this sort of last-minute sprint to take the Kiwis through. I think the Kiwis would have enough sprinting power and Bond would have enough endurance and Murray could back him up. So I'd say Murray and Bond would win that race. Sure. And adding adding on to that, you know, racing is a six lane event. What other pair? What other three pairs would you throw into that race to to make it as exciting as possible? Um, well, I think I think I you know this would be an odd thing, but I'd love to have seen Redgrave and Holmes at their best race. Redgrave and Pinson, Pinson and Redgrave, the other way round. Um, yeah. So I'd I'd love to see how that might turn out. Um, I would like to see that there was um, the German, the East German pair, the Landvoits, um, 
that were very, very strong in the 76 and the 80 Olympics. Um, and they were kind of um, the iconic pair of that time. Um, so it would be really good to see how they would perform in that race. Um, and then I think, um, you know, uh, probably for sentimental reasons, um, you know, uh, sadly, Yuri Piminov's not not with us now. He, he, he died after uh, an operation. Um, but, you know, because he used to race them, um, they were the world champions in pairs, I think, back in, in uh, 1980. Uh, 1981, I think, 1986, and um, I'd love to see them in the race. Sure. Yeah, that would be that would be a fantastic event to watch. So um, the, the 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 question, it's a double barrel question: is uh, what boat company did you race with mostly in your in in your rowing career? What what boat company? Oh, that's a good question. So. Um, I could tell you what boat I preferred, but the boat I think I rode mostly uh, would be, um, it would have been a company called Carbocraft. Okay. So because because I was rowing for so long, so my first world championship rode with that in 77, 78, 79, 81, 82, and then I think 83, we moved into a Janasek. And then I think from from elsewhere, so 84 was Empacker, 85, 86 was Stanfleet, 87, 88 was Empacker, 89, can't remember, 90 was Empacker, and then Empacker's going forward, I think. So maybe, maybe it would be Empacker, um, uh, which I do tend to love a yellow boat, actually. So, yeah, so that leads on to, to our next, uh, the second part of the question, which was if you were rowing now, which uh, boat would you go for? Um, I think, um, I mean, I guess it would, I'd like to try out, you know, Felipe in terms of the small boats, because so many athletes use them in small boats. Um, uh, but um, mostly, I think in terms of, is I know do a lot of tend to do a lot of eights rowing these days, and we we have two eights um, in the boathouse at Molesy for this sort of veteran crew of ex internationals, the veteran squad really. Um, one's a Hudson and one's an Empacker, and um, almost everybody prefers the Empacker to the Hudson in terms of it's easier to get a good row in the Empacker than it is in the Hudson. Um, and I don't go out in many Empacker small boats these days because they're mainly kept for the better rowers in the club. But I always feel it a treat when I get out into an Empacker small boat. Um, so I think I would love to row an Empacker. So moving on, this is this is an interesting one, and I, one I would like to chat about is um, why why do you not commentate for the Olympics? And you know what's you know what? How does it work with the Olympic commentary versus world rowing commentary? Yeah, so um, so World Rowing does all the uh, events like World Championships and World Cups. The Olympics um, has a separate broadcast organisation called OBS, Olympic Broadcasting Service. Um, so if, um, so, you know, normally at World Championships, there'll be some teams with their own commentators. Some, some broadcast companies will take, you know, our commentary. 
But say, for example, the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, will have their own commentators. Um, the Austrians had their own commentators in Linz, for example. Um, and um, at the Olympics, that multiplies. So clearly you've got more sort of local broadcast commentators doing TV work like like the BBC, like N NBC, um, like Sky New Zealand and Fox Australia. So um, if you were going to watch the Olympics uh, on their YouTube channel, on the IOC's YouTube channel, or, you know, watch any Olympic event sort of subsequently, um, the OBS do the commentary for... Um, for that channel. So um, I think it was Nathan Twaddle and a huge, uh, and a guy, an OBS commentator that did it for the Rio Olympics. Um, so I'm scheduled to be doing it with um, an OBS commentator for the Tokyo Olympics or was scheduled. Um, so the world rowing commentators as such, uh, they generally, the course commentators get the gig in the Olympics Um through a company called Great Big Events that run the sort of, you know, the the audio and media content for the course, for the spectators. So it tends to be the same guys for that, but not for the television. But for this, okay. you know, if it happens in Tokyo, hopefully I'll be there in 2021. Yeah, that'll be great. Because, like, Rio was pretty good, but London was shocking. London was terrible. Um, I think in yeah. our lightweight fours race, they he, the the guy even gets confused between uh, Australia and South Africa. So <laughs> it's a really it's a low point of commentary. <laughs> yeah. So Martin, this is another kind of a, a bit of a, a double-barreled question, and as you know, rowing over the years has seen a bit of changes with events, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts around lightweight rowing and the decision to obviously cut the lightweight four and the you know the the recent movements in how you know thesis operating around lightweight rowing. You know, what are your what are your thoughts around around that and and the, and you know the feelings to the lightweight rowing seems to be being phased out. Yeah, well, I you know um, I was. One of the people against lightweight rowing coming into the Olympics, um, you know, when all that was going on um, and losing, it was the men's Cox Four and Cox Pair, I think, the events that went out. I have to say, you know, I've been a real fan of lightweight rowing um, and loved, you know, the idea of um, the different dimension it brings to the sport and, and the competitiveness as well um, in the races that, uh, you know, you can think of... Uh, some amazing lightweight fours and lightweight doubles races. Um, so, you know, I think I, you know, I, I still miss the lightweight men's four, for example. Um, I can't believe that we're going to see potentially see the back of the O'Donovans or O'Donovan and Fintan McCarthy, depending on which crew they select, um, you know, who are probably two of the biggest characters in the sport. Um, try as I might, I can't see any other way. I can't see what else World Rowing could have done. I think um, in terms of being, you know, limited by the number of medals, gold medals that the IOC would give to rowing, um, I think the, the move towards gender equality was pretty much um, unanswerable. So I think clearly things had to change in that respect. Um, I think that in terms of the IOC, there, there just wasn't enough um support for lightweight rowing within the ioc 
you know, that they basically looked at it and just thought that this is um, this is a kind of sport that shouldn't have a weight category event because it's not like a combat sport. And there was a real feeling against it within the IOC. And rowing wasn't strong enough to stand up against that. So um, given sports politics is what they are. And, you know, there have been quite strong words spoken um by you know Thomas Back, the president of the IOC, when he came to talk to Rowing's sort of leaders at the Plovdiv World Championships, um, you know, basically said you, you've got a sport which is the same format. You know, kids have an attention of you know ten seconds. You've got to try and try and grab kids' attention, and and you know you, you should be looking for how Rowing can do that. I, I'm not sure that Rowing could have had any other option than to do what it's done, really. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure that coastal rowing is the big answer. Um, you know, I think it's an easy solution. Um, I think you can get, um, you know, you can get a beach in. You can get beach sprints. I'm not sure that is going to be make rowing sexy and you know wonderful to young kids. Um, yeah, I think it's probably something to try. I, I would probably go for something more radical than that. I think. Yeah, because I mean, we pose the same question. I mean, we ask everyone what do they what do they change in in rowing, and it's it's never coastal rowing. It's always um, something to do with sprints and uh, making just bringing it closer and 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 more more to the spectator. And I think, uh, as you say, something more drastic is is needed. I think. Yeah, yeah, so, and, and I would go. I, I probably have crews. Um, you know, I'd have crews doubling up, so you'd have um, the same athletes in 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 the single and the double, and 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 in the quadruple skull, and in the the pair and the four and the eight. Um, I'd have I'd bring in indoor rowing into it um, and get athletes on indoor rowers, as you know. So you you kind of have a, a progression towards winning medals. Um, where the score adds up as you go towards winning the gold medals, a bit, you know, a bit like the heptathlon or pentathlon. Um, I'd have different events, you know, different distances, sprint events in. Um, I, you know, I try and keep something like the 2K if you could, but if the course was shorter and they couldn't afford it, then I'd, I'd, um, I'd look at doing something, you know, a shorter distance. Um, I'd, Probably even in terms of, you know, I think it would, would have been great if you had, um, you know, head-to-head races over the course on the Thames, you know, like the boat race or something. Yeah. Um, when we had the Olympics in London, then you could have, um, you know, races, uh, you know, there's a on, on, on rivers that go through major cities that tend to get the Olympics. So I'd kind of look to be a bit more radical about the kind of formats for, for racing, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I think we we get into the 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 question. I mean, a bit later, but I think obviously it's pretty good now. But um, you know, one thing for me that I I really I find attractive is I think um you know that we have the World Cup rowing circuit, which is fantastic. But it would be really cool if somehow you could introduce a, you know another event series and maybe have a limited say. Okay, we're going to have the men's pair is going to be the only event available for the series. And you can have standard heat racing or you can have knock, knockout racing, but also you could double that up and add and say that, you know, at these events, you can open up the rules and regulations around sponsorships and maybe get um, a company or brands involved and, and really open the regulations around that. 
And then you can also look at, say, you know, let's make it 500 meters. And then maybe let's say we can make it a big city thing. So we can find cities in Europe that have fantastic uh, water um, courses in, you know, in the city themselves and, and make quite a, add that to the element, which adds a bit of, you know, flair to the event. And I think that would be really cool. And, and sprinting, I think, is, is, is an obvious choice that should be explored too. Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should uh, we we should move on to the actual quick fire questions now, and the first one is if you could race any boat class, if you could go back to the games and, and race any boat class, uh, what would it be? Single skull. <laughs> oh, that was. <laughs> I see you've come I've, prepared. I've tried single skull. I've I've raced in one World Cup as a single skull badly, and I'd really like to do it better. Yeah, and you've yeah. also raced so many of the boat classes. I mean, you 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 probably raced the world champs in 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 nearly all the boat classes. So, uh, the single skull is probably the one that you you can uh, still you know still learn the most probably. Yeah, definitely. I don't think I'd do any good, but I'd like to race it for sure. So, uh, the next question is: If you could choose any three people from any time and from anywhere in the world to race in a four with, who would your three crewmates be? Oh, well, there's an interesting one here. So um, I think, um, so Stroke would be Kathleen Heddle, um, the Canadian double Olympic champion from um, the Barcelona Olympics. I mean, she was such a phenomenal athlete um, that it'd be really great to, to row with her. Um the um, the bowman. So I've written this book on. Um, he was kind of he's um, a guy that uh, was an amazing concert pianist. He uh, won a medal for Britain. He was an Australian who won a medal for Britain in the 1908 Olympics, and he won that diamond skulls at Henley three times. He's called F. S. Kelly, and I've co-written a book about him with this Australian. Who's she's done the music, and I've done the kind of rowing. And he was killed in the First World War, so I've done the rowing and the war. So I know a lot about him. So I'd love F.S. Kelly to be at bow in, in, that, um, in that boat. Um, and I think somewhere I'd love Drew Ginn to be in it just because, um, you know, of everything he knows about technique and his motivation, you know, to various crews. So, um, so I think, you know, Heddle, Ginn, uh, Cross and Kelly would be the four. Nice. Um, yeah, I see you came prepared that for that. Probably, yeah, that must be my favorite choice for the custom four. That's definitely the most interesting we've had. So, yeah, well, yeah. I think women are underrated in a way. I mean, I think they're fantastic athletes, and, you know, you think, why not? I, you know, I think it'd be, be loved. Normally, they have a lot more understanding of rhythm and flow, I think, you know, so it'd be great to, to, to get that chance. Yeah, and it's it's what yep. uh, Drew said to us is about watching lightweights is they don't have the power, so they have to find other ways to to make uh, the boat fast, and that is the only other option is to row better and row well. Yeah. So the next question is, Johan, you're gonna you got a lot to choose from here. Is what is your favorite rowing race uh, that you find yourself watching over and over? Ooh. Um, so that's a really good question. And, um, I've heard you ask other people and, um, I mean, there are so, there are so many to choose from. I think, um, 
the race that I would watch over and over again, um, I guess because, because you know, you, you sometimes speak to people at, um, at corporate events and things, you end up putting the Olympic gold medal race on. I tend to see that a lot. I, I, I tend not to go back and watch it. Um, I tend to, I, I guess, I tend to watch races. Um, so we've been watching a lot of our races in 79 and 1980 when we did, got the bronze medal in the fours. Um, I And so I think my answer would be probably in a 1980 Olympic race. Um, I would tend to go back and watch that. Uh, and we're, we're not on it a lot, to be quite honest. Um, I still think there's a lot of magic from the first Olympic medal. But to be quite honest, you know, I, I do watch a lot of Ryan races. Um, I'm due to be talking um, soon to Olivia Coffey. And, um, and I've just gone back to watch her race, um, fantastic race, um, where she w- stroked the quad in 2015 to a gold medal, the American quad. Um, and I just love watching that race. I remember thinking, you know, because I was really surprised the Americans beat the German world champions. So you could always turn up a rowing race and find something interesting in it. You know, always, I find. Um, and that's the thing I love about the sport. There's always something of interest you can find in a race. So um, the next question, uh, we actually already basically covered it. And it was, if you were in charge at world rowing, what would you change? So we're going to just take a little twist. And because you are in charge, basically, of, of commentary at World Rowing, what would you like to see uh, come into the commentary or, or like to see uh, change from, a, from the spectator point of view uh, for World Rowing's races? Well, I think, you know, I think to, to their credit, World Rowing are trying to look to sort of innovations. Um, I'd love to see onboard cameras. I think the, I'd love to see a drone fly as close to World Rowing crews as it does to crews at Henley. Um, I'd love to see heart rate monitors on athletes, and I'd love to see what you know heart rates the rowers are putting out. And um, um, you know, I think on-screen information, so you know, more similar to to what you might get at Formula One. Yeah. Um, I think the graphics, they're looking at what sort of graphics they do. I think, you know, I think we're not quite there with the graphics yet. I think um, it's, you know, sometimes you get shots and it's difficult to see which crew's in the lead. And I know you've got that little bar down at the bottom right with the, the, the quickest moving crew. I'm not, I'm not quite sure if that works yet. Um, so I, I still think we're trying for the perfect, you know, graphic yeah. solution for a rowing race. Yeah, but I, I like think the, when they, you know, the, when the they speed. had heart rate monitors on in the boat race, I was gobsmacked uh, to see what heart rates the coxes had. Yeah, that was actually that was. I remember seeing that as well and going, "Whoa, that's much higher than I, I thought it would be." Um, yeah, I, I like the the speed, the like uh, the, the the crew that's moving the fastest on the water. I don't like the the bars when the bars come up on, on showing you who's in the lead and, and where everyone is sitting. I like the seeing the stroke rate and the, and the boat speed is, is really cool. And then I'd also love to see um, like you guys talk to athletes at the end of the race or after the podium or somewhere there, have like a, a brief chat. There, there, there must be so, a somewhere uh, to fit in. 
So here we go. I've made that suggestion and I've said essentially in terms of you have to have the races running at a certain time. So my suggestion, which I, I don't think has happened yet, but um, or I don't know if anyone's taken it forward, but essentially just show just show one crew getting the gold medal. Um, you know, film the others getting the bronze medals, but don't show that on the TV, but then use the time to do, to show hot interviews with the athletes when, because you can do that when they come off the water. Yeah. And so, you're gonna get... in other words, you, you just show the gold medal and then use the time that you would show for the bronze and the silver medalists to actually put hot interviews with the athletes in. And you're going to get such awesome chats with them because people have just finished races. Their emotions are high. They're exhausted. And like anything you get there, you're going to get some really great stuff. And it's going to be so interesting for for people, especially people, I think, watching on the live stream at home. Um, you know, they watch the yeah. race and then they've got to sit through this long, um, the, the long uh, medal ceremony and then on to the next race. And I think that will be such a cool filler for that time. Yeah. Yeah, that that's yeah. it. That's that's what the sport needs. Yeah, that's I must say that there's a there's a lot of golden bits there on on what to change. I, I haven't even thought of some of the stuff. But uh, the next one, um, we're gonna see if we've got something here. Is that we always ask the guests what's their fastest two k pb, and I don't know. Have you have you done a two k pb, or is there yeah. is there? What's, so my what's fastest. The fastest my, my fastest 2k so it was it was 6.01 um and um that was on the early days of concept two um so um you know um on that on the guessing ergometer as i've said it was 5100 um so i was um i guess um when Matthew Pinson was, so I did a four with Matthew Pinson in 1990. Um, we never raced at the world championships, but we rode through the world cups together. So he was really just, I guess, 20 then. So we were quite similar on scores on the guessing ergo. Um, all of that four fairly similar around the 5,100 mark when we did the, the, the test there on the guessing ergo. So, um, these days I reckon, you know, I'd be, doing well to i'd probably equate to around about a 550 these days or something like that at 551 552 um yeah with, 601 uh, yeah so when do you think i don't um, i take it you pull the 601 quite later but maybe another question is when in your career did you think you were the fastest physiologically um so that was really odd i kind of um so I did this um, Cox Pairs race at Lucerne. We got a silver medal <coughs> um, in 1994, which was my last year. We never managed to put it together at the World Championships, but we, we kind of did, I think, 651 at Lucerne, which relatively, considering all the boats that I'd been in, was, I think, the fastest time that I'd done. Um, <clears throat> and I was, what was I, 36, 37 then? Um, I think, you know, my my best year was probably to, uh, 1985 when I was um, 28, maybe. Yeah. Um, but, you yeah. know, I, I think I was still getting faster when I was 37, 36, 37. 
Yeah, I mean, it's rowing's a it's an amazing sport where I mean, because it's like an endurance based sport, you know, you have these incredible careers where athletes can really get fast. I mean, you can even uh, well into their thirties. I mean, like Rob Woodell is a great example of how he, he broke the record when he was in his twenties and he came back and he broke it again much later too. Yeah, exactly, son. Yeah, and I mean, also just yeah. uh, you doing four Olympics is already just so impressive uh, as a career. So, I know. Well, I used to think of rowing as my career and teaching as my hobby, but rowing didn't give me any money, so teaching was what you know paid paid the bills. Yeah, you said you got to do what you you love, and if you get paid for it, you it's a bonus. I know exactly, sir. So. Yeah, you clearly are in love with rowing, and this might be a bit of a difficult question. But if you had to choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, uh, which sport would you choose? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, um, I I think in terms of a different sport for the Olympics, I'd like to do something like. Um, the half pipe in the Winter Olympics and do those crazy flips that they do. That's um, so awesome. Because <laughs> that, and I'd, I'd like to hang out and be really cool in these suits that don't look like I'm an athlete. You know, um, that look like I'm some sort of hipster guy. Because yeah. it's so totally different to what I am. I think doing something completely different and just trying something like that would be so cool. Um, you know, because I think a lot of the a lot of the sports. Um, we've got an endurance element. I think I've done a sport with an endurance element. So I'd, I'd kind of like to be the hipster cool guy that goes down the half pipe. That's so awesome. And the That's winter the games best. is cool. We haven't had a, a winter, we haven't had many people choose the winter games. Yeah, well, I wouldn't choose the ski jump. <laughs> <laughs> no, me neither. Yeah, well. That wraps it up for our interview, Martin. I think oh, just wow. just before we close things up completely, uh, we just want to give some time to you to tell people where they can find you, what you're up to, and uh, just a quick sh- yeah, give you a, give you a chance to shout out and to anything you would like to shout out to. Yeah, so um, people can find me on Twitter on at Mark Crossy. Uh, I'm on Instagram as well, um, and. Um, I tend to comment a lot on rowing events, I guess. In terms of what I'm up to, I, I teach my history two days a week, which I love, at school in Hampton, which is uh, where a number of former British rowers have been to. So I've been lucky enough to teach them. And these days I'm into training and development work, uh, generally with adults, um, on the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And so um, always interested with things to do with leadership, developing coaching potential, um, you know, listening skills, feedback and that kind of stuff. Um, and then of course I've got this wonderful gig with world Rome where I do the commentary and, uh, love that too. So that's me in a nutshell. That's so cool. Oh, you can catch me on YouTube as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got, yeah, a YouTube channel as well. Um, with some rowing videos and um, a few history videos, it's quite eclectic, really. <laughs> cool. We'll put the the link in the in the description, and uh, and people can uh, can head over there to to see all of that. And yeah, just thanks so much for for giving us a huge chunk of your time. I mean, that's uh, an awesome, nice, long interview, and and just so cool to to prick your brain and and talk about your career and all these awesome. 
um, I don't know, all these awesome things in the sport that we love. Yeah, it's been amazing to share the love of the sport over the last couple of hours, guys. Really fantastic. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks ever so much for asking me. Bye. Ciao. Ciao. Cool, guys. That's a wrap of the Martin Cross episode. I'm sure you guys have been riveted to your seats and are listening intensely for the last uh, little while uh, as that was such a roller coaster of an episode and really one of our best, I think, out there. And yeah, I really hope you guys enjoyed it as much as, as we did. Yeah, this was an awesome episode, one that, that's been in the making for a long time. So we're really happy that we got it out there and a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a, a change of pace and really, really cool chatting to Martin. Um, don't forget, guys, please uh, share the show, uh, tell people about it, engage with us on social media. And we also have that PayPal um, account linked to our show. So if you want to support us there, uh, you could do that too. So anyway, guys, thanks a lot for listening to the episode and uh, that's Jake out. Quite a, a prevalent discussion and a prevalent, 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 prevalent topic uh, in the sporting world.